Good afternoon. Welcome to another George Consortium COVID-19 Public Health Law Briefing, presented by our colleagues around the country in association with the Public Health Law Watch at Northeastern University and the Center for Public Health Law Research at Temple University. We're here to provide you expert legal analysis during the COVID-19 pandemic, and hopefully to answer some of your questions. I'm Wendy Parmet, Professor of Law at Northeastern University, and join me today are two true experts, really top folks on Medicaid. We have with us Nicole Uberfeld of Boston University School of Public Health and Law School and Professor Sidney Watson at St. Louis University. We know that Medicaid is always important to help and ensuring access to care for millions of Americans. But Nicole, maybe you could help us get started by talking a little bit about how Medicaid is enabling the states to cope with and respond to the emergency. Thanks, Wendy. I'm glad to be here and thank you for having us. I just think it's really important for people to understand that as much as Medicaid plays an important role in people's everyday lives, it is also uniquely positioned to respond in a crisis, whatever the crisis might be, whether it's a natural disaster, a pandemic, a recession. In today's world, unfortunately, we're experiencing two of those. Medicaid is designed to be responsive to crises because it enables states to be flexible in a pandemic. And so the way that that happens primarily is with the stability of federal funding. The federal matching that's available in Medicaid has no cap. And there is a match formula that makes it so that roughly the amount that a state gets from the federal government is tied to the per capita income of that state. So that the poorer a state is, the more money it gets from the federal government. Because the federal government doesn't have to worry about a balanced budget, it can engage in what we call counter-cyclical spending, which means that in the very moment that people need Medicaid the most because they're losing jobs, in the very moment that state budgets are crashing because the tax base is crashing, the federal government can step in and offer more money, offer solidity and stability. So that counter-cyclical spending is a long-term feature of Medicaid that makes it so that Medicaid spending always goes up in a crisis and then comes back down when times are more normal. The other thing to understand about Medicaid is that it offers comprehensive coverage at little or no cost, including drugs, primary care, testing, all of the features of our basic care that we expect to be covered by any insurance program. Sydney, is there anything you'd like to add to this? Nicole has talked about the financing part, which is critical. The other part to remember about Medicaid is it has a unique structure because it's designed to be a safety net program. Private insurance, commercial insurance, group insurance that many of us get through our employers, there's an enrollment period and it's once a year and you have to sign up during that enrollment period. That's not the way Medicaid works. It is there when people need it. People can sign up for Medicaid at any point or any time during the year. It also provides what's called point in time income eligibility, which means it looks at the income you have when you apply for coverage. So if you've lost a a good job and now you're in need, you may be income eligible and that's important. And finally, it has what's called retroactive eligibility, that eligibility starts up to three months before the day on which a person applies if they're otherwise eligible. And that's really important because it means we can catch people and get them signed up for Medicaid when they show up at a site for testing, when they get sick and go to an urgent care center or in the worst case scenario, 
end up in a hospital emergency room. So you've been talking about Medicaid as if it's Medicaid, but we know that there are differences, right, between the states and particularly also between the so-called expansion state under the ACA that it chose to expand their programs and those many states that have chosen not to. Can you talk a little bit about what differences we might see between the expansion and non-expansion states? Well, I think I'll start off on that one since I'm speaking from Missouri, a state that hasn't expanded. And I think the short version is that non-expansion states are entering this pandemic uh, with one hand tied behind their back. By not expanding Medicaid, they cannot cover low-income adults who are not parents under Medicaid. And we know that that is about 2 million adults in this country as we started this process um, who states could make eligible for Medicaid and they haven't. And these are states like Missouri and Alabama and Georgia and Mississippi that are poor states. And I'm going to turn it over to Nicole to talk a little bit about who those people are who were left out. So I think it's important to understand that in non-expansion states, if not all of them, then in most of them, there are deep economic disparities. People tend to work in agriculture. They work in retail. They're unlikely to have employment benefits like employer-sponsored health insurance. And many of them may not be making enough to even qualify for premium tax credits in the exchange to purchase their own private insurance, or if they could, they simply can't afford it. Even the tax credit that's available isn't enough to get them over that hump. So we see not only deep economic disparities in non-expansion states, but also more chronic diseases, more comorbidities, greater health disparities. And these things will inflame the impact of coronavirus, especially as we're seeing now in Black communities. We have the example that I learned from Sydney yesterday that in St. Louis, all of the deaths have been amongst the African-American community. Today in the Boston Globe, there's reporting that 40% of infections are in people of color, even though they account for 25% of the population. And so I don't want us to be misconstrued as saying that Medicaid expansion is everything. (coughs) Clearly it isn't, but it is such an important tool in the toolbox for battling a pandemic that without that tool, no state can address the problems that we're seeing right now completely. Also, we know that there are links between having Medicaid and being able to participate civically and politically. And so it means that people in these communities don't have as much of a voice as to how their state will respond to the problems that they're facing. What difference does the fact that we're in uh, emergency, and what I really mean here is that the federal government has declared in many different ways that there is a public health emergency now. Um, does that make a difference in terms of what is available in Medicaid, the tools? that are available to states. Um, Maybe, Nicole, if you could start. Yeah, thank you. So to be clear, if any of the non-expansion states wanted to expand Medicaid, they could do it at any time through a state plan amendment. It's a very simple process. It would be very quick. It would be very easy. And those states could also decide later on if they didn't want to continue to engage in Medicaid expansion, that they want to withdraw that state plan amendment. Now, they would have to find places for people to go. But the point is, not everything requires federal government intervention. That being said, there are certain tools that are not available until the Secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services declares a public health emergency. At that time, once the Secretary has declared a public health emergency, he then has power to make certain grants, to modify telehealth rules, (coughs) 
excuse me, to engage in contracts, to access emergency funds, and no state request is needed per se. In addition, there are certain statutes that require the president to declare an emergency. The Stafford Act and the National Emergencies Act both require that the president take action to ensure that, for example, FEMA can then kick into action, and that makes certain funding available so that states can make requests of the federal government. In combination, the secretary's public health emergency declaration and the president's declaration of an emergency make it so that waivers that are called 1135 waivers are available. Sydney, do you have anything to add? And maybe you could talk a little bit more about what is an 1135 waiver and how is it relevant to the present moment? Yeah, I'd like to talk about it in in two ways. Uh, We talk a lot about waivers in Medicaid. We don't talk a lot about a section 1135 waivers because they are triggered when both the president declares an emergency and the secretary of HHS declares uh, a public health emergency. States like Florida and Texas have a lot of experience using the 1135 waivers to respond to hurricanes. Uh, Here in Missouri, we use them to respond to a tornado in Joplin. Now we see 49 states have 1135 waivers, which are allowing them to use Medicaid to respond very quickly to support the health system and to support low-income patients. On the provider side, it allows states to bring new providers into Medicaid very quickly, to bring in providers from other states to help out when needed. Uh, It also allows the use of telehealth, and it also allows some special rules to help patients keep their care, to remove prior approval authority for drugs and for ongoing services. So these emergency waivers are really important. They're short-term waivers. Uh, They are only good for 60 days unless we approve by the secretary, and they go away if the public health emergency um, is retracted. So we have to realize that we're in a time where there are some special uh, tools in Medicaid that are tied to these declarations of emergency. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the legislation. Congress has passed several acts in the last few weeks responding to COVID-19. Anything in this legislation that impacts Medicaid or I'll say more generally healthcare access for low-income people for the people in the Medicaid population? Well, I'll take that one first. And the, the biggest news with Medicaid is that Congress has authorized a 6.2% increase in federal matching funds for Medicaid. Um, This is not unusual in an economic crisis or a public health crisis because we know that the roles go up when times are bad. One of the typical tools in the toolkit that Congress uses is to raise the federal percentage. And they did that. It applies to the regular federal match that states get that's tied to um, their income rate. Uh, One of the interesting things about this, this increase in the federal matching percentage is is tied to some pretty strong requirements on states. One is that they can't cut eligibility or benefits to be able to get this increased match. They can't terminate anyone's Medicaid except if somebody voluntarily requests to be taken off of Medicaid. States can't increase premiums and they have to cover testing for the COVID-19 coronavirus without any cost sharing for Medicaid patients. Um, And this is important for the states. It's also important for access to care. I'll turn it over to Nicole to talk about some other things in the um, stimulus.
stimulus packages. So I just wanted to add one piece here, which is that that 6.2% federal match increase does not apply to the expansion population. And there was some back and forth, apparently, as to whether there should be a renewal of the 100% federal funding for the expansion population. And apparently that was rejected in negotiations. If that 6.2% increase did apply to the expansion population, it would get states close to 100% funding for the expansion population, and it would make it more desirable to cover the expansion population in non-expansion states. So we can talk about that a little bit more later, but I wanted to point out that there is one important carve out there. Um, I do think it's also important to understand that this is um, not something that um, matters in terms of how people are able to get get coverage, but it is important in terms of understanding that there's additional money for, for example, inspecting nursing homes. So CMS gets $200 million, at least half of which has to be spent on inspecting nursing homes. We know that nursing homes have been a particular hotspot in the coronavirus outbreak. Um, There are uh, new rules as to, for example, who can order home health services. There are delays in the disproportionate share hospital reductions under the ACA in the CARES Act. Sorry, can you just explain to people who may not know what the disproportionate share is? Absolutely. So hospitals that serve more uninsured, low-income populations get special money from Medicare and Medicaid to ensure that they can continue to serve their communities. And under the Affordable Care Act, dish payments were reduced under the theory that if everybody became insured under the ACA, then there would be much less of a need for dish payments. But because of NFIB making it so that states could opt out of Medicaid expansion, there has been an ongoing need for dish payments to continue rather than to diminish. And so the CARES Act makes it so that the planned reductions in dish payments are pushed off once more. Uh, Thank you for stopping me. (laughs) No, thank you. Thank you for that. That was really helpful. You've talked a lot, both of you talked a lot about what Medicaid can do and how it's useful and an important tool at this, particularly at this moment. Maybe you could just talk as as we begin to wind down on time a little bit about what are some of the challenges that remain and what are challenges do states in particular face as they try to deploy Medicaid to respond to this crisis? Well, the most obvious challenge to states is going to be a drop in state revenue. The economic part of this crisis are job losses, businesses closed, and that's going to translate into a drop in state and federal taxes. It's particularly problematic for the states because most states have to have a balanced budget. And this is why we see provisions in the federal legislation to support states to get federal money to states. But coming up with the state's share of match for Medicaid is going to be more challenging in this this time. The increase in the federal match for Medicaid at this point only lasts as long as the public health crisis lasts. I think going forward, one key issue is we're going to need Congress to address an ongoing increase in the federal match for Medicaid to help through the longer economic recovery here. We have seen that kind of thing with the ARRA during the Great Recession around 2008. So we know that it is possible for Congress to consider a longer term increase in the federal match rate. Uh, There's a model for that already. I would just like also to note that um, we have seen that the states that run their own exchanges have almost all of them chosen to open enrollment on the exchanges. I want to talk for a minute about why that's important. Uh, So far, the only holdout, uh, and I didn't get to check it this morning, but I think it's still true, is that um, Idaho might be the only state that's holding out out of the 12 states that have their own state-run health insurance exchanges. 
And there's an important synergy um, between the exchanges and Medicaid and employer-sponsored insurance. Um, and so to be clear, if someone loses their job, that does trigger a special enrollment period on the exchange that makes it possible for someone to enroll in private insurance through the exchange. However, open enrollment plays an even broader role in that it makes it so that, for example, let's say somebody opted to purchase a short-term plan, which the Trump administration has pushed as a cheaper alternative to the qualified health plans that are on the exchanges. Those are really junk insurance, frankly, and people are going to find pretty quickly that those short-term plans don't cover much of what they need if they do get desperately sick with COVID-19. And so open enrollment makes it so that people could switch from a short-term plan, which is technically not insurance coverage under the ACA, to a qualified health plan on the exchange. We would also see that people who maybe just chose not to have insurance, maybe they couldn't afford it, would be able to enroll. They, the trouble with the special enrollment period or relying on the special enrollment period is that you have to have one of those triggering events, a birth, a death, loss of a job. Open enrollment makes it easier for everyone to get the insurance coverage that they need with the more predictable packages that are available on the exchanges. Further, it's pretty clear that providers and hospitals are not going to be able to withstand the high numbers of uninsured who are desperately ill during this pandemic. And so it would be in their benefit, in addition to benefiting those who are enrolling, to make sure that people can get coverage. The bigger the risk pool, the better, basically. And of course, we're seeing too, you said, what are some of the broader challenges that states are facing? The leadership is very uneven. Some states are way out in front of what's happening at the federal level, and other states are trailing way behind what's happening at the federal level. And that makes it so that your zip code dictates what kind of access to care you get. And that is an inequity that we need to be attentive to going forward. Thank you so much. And we're running short of time, but I just want to ask if you could talk a little bit about the administration's role in all of this. We know that before COVID-19 struck, the United States administration was putting forth a variety of different proposals to really change Medicaid and probably make Medicaid less available to low-income Americans. Wondering where some of those changes are and how the administration is responding and what it's doing with respect to Medicaid as this crisis is continuing. Yes, we have to comment on kind of the Trump administration's approach to Medicaid prior to this pandemic. And that has been a concerted effort to roll back the Medicaid expansion. It's been a concerted effort to encourage states to use work requirements and premiums and paperwork submissions to try to get people off of Medicaid. And as we go through this crisis and we can see how important Medicaid enrollment can be to get people comprehensive coverage and to support our safety net provider network. We don't see a response from the Trump administration that's really one to build Medicaid. We see them stressing things like money for uncompensated care and money for hospitals. And all of that's really important. But we have disadvantaged communities and people with very serious comorbidities that need comprehensive care and the kind of comprehensive coverage that really only Medicaid or another health insurer can provide. If I can just draw that lens back, I agree with everything Sydney said, but in truth, nothing that the Trump administration has done differs from their uh, policy priors. In other words, the administration is still trying to kill the Affordable Care Act through the Texas versus U.S. litigation. No other part of 
the coronavirus response is really inconsistent with any of their prior policies. The desire to loosen regulations, the desire to privatize aspects of Medicare, increased use of telehealth, generally ignoring Medicaid, all of these things are totally consistent with the uh, administration's prior policy choices. And so it is notable that, for example, even though we have more than 400 studies indicating all of the health outcome benefits of Medicaid expansion, even during a pandemic, the leadership in the Department of Health and Human Services can't bring itself to say, oh, we should ensure that states Mm -hmm. expand Medicaid. Well, on that sobering note, I am afraid (laughs) we have come to the end of our time. And I really want to thank our guests. Maybe if this horrible pandemic continues, we might ask you to come back because there's I know there's more you could offer us. We will be broadcasting here on Twitter at noon every Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday. Or you can find us at, at Public Health Law Watch or search for hashtag COVID Law Briefing. Uh, show notes are at the Public Health Law Watch COVID Briefings. You can find that on the web. And our show is also available at the podcast. The Week in Health Law. The COVID-19 Public Health Law Watch briefings are produced by Faith Kalick and Bethany Saxon. We will see you next time. Please stay well, stay at home, or wear your mask. Thank you so much.